Hi, this is Liz Tinkham, and welcome to Third Act, a podcast about people embracing the third act of their lives with a new sense of purpose and direction. The third act begins when your script ends, but your show's not finished. Today's guest is Dominique Mill, the hedge fund investor. Dominique grew up in France, and strangely for we Americans, she wanted to get out of Paris when she graduated university to actually anywhere that would give her a job. She landed in finance in New York City and then on to her MBA at Stanford. While there, she developed, as she says, a platonic crush on the brain of Professor William Sharp, developer of the Sharp Ratio, which then led her to a career in hedge fund investing. She recently left that career after 20 successful years. In looking back, she realized that there was no one like her, meaning no women, in hedge funds then or even now. So she wrote a book, Damsel in Distress, which debuts on September 7th. The book helps to encourage more young women and men to pursue a career in hedge fund investing. In her pre-tirement, as I like to say, she serves on five company boards, mentors other women, and plays a mean game of polo. Dominique, welcome to Third Act. It's wonderful to have you. Thank you for having me. So you are the first person I've ever interviewed who actually plays polo in their third act. Is this something that, and I think I caught you the first time I talked to you, either coming or going. Is this something you've been doing for a while? Not long enough. I started <laughs> in uh, my 40s, which by everyone else's standard is, is kind of a new thing. Most people have been writing since childhood and I didn't have that, uh, that opportunity or that advantage. So I've been uh, trying to catch up, but it is uh, a real passion and it can be uh, all consuming in terms of time and money actually. I bet. I bet. We'll come back to that because I think that's sort of more of a third act thing. But just to get started, um, you're the second guest I've had who's been from France. So I'm starting to think that uh, the quality and the work ethic of the women there must be just terrific. And I think my friend Chantal, who was like four episodes ago, would would agree. But I always like to start by asking my guests sort of what was their first act? You know, where'd you go to college? And what did you expect to do and when you came out of college? So I was born and raised in France, in uh, the suburb of Paris. So that's where I went to college. And frankly, I didn't spend much time thinking about what I would do later. I can't say that I had very specific aspirations. I was an ambitious kid. So, you know, I I did think I would be something very special. I suppose most kids do. (laughs) But certainly... I had no inkling that I would be in finance. I had no interest in finance, as a matter of fact. And so the reason my first job, that my first job was in in finance on Wall Street is not because it had anything to do with finance, but because it was in New York and that I wanted to travel and see the world. But I didn't have, you know, what... uh, the media sort of typically assigned to a hedge fund investor, which is a very early calling from the god of money to start trading when they're in their crib or shortly after. <laughs> so you went into finance in New York and how did you how did you end up there? Was it just where you got a job or did you specifically target it? I specifically looked for a job abroad. The one job I really wanted was actually in Tahiti, and it was a sort of pretend job doing very little for a short-term period that would have led to, I'm sure, 
absolutely nothing, but it was in Tahiti in Polynesia. So I thought, what a fabulous opportunity. And then reason sort of uh, set in. And I got, uh, when I got another job from a French bank doing credit analysis in New York, and I thought, you know, New York is actually, it's good enough. It's not the exotic lifestyle that I had in mind, but it's kind of legit. I guess I'll learn something and at least I'll be out of France, out of Paris and meet new people and see new places. So that's what I did. It seems so funny to say you wanted to leave Paris because I think most Americans would just kill to go to Paris. But I think it's all in what you're used to and where you've grown up, right? I you know, Paris is wonderful. In fact, I uh, when I go back now, I really wonder why I ever left. Uh, and I encourage every American to come and and uh, at least visit Paris. I mean that it's yeah. a crime not to in your in your life. Uh, but I simply wanted to be elsewhere. You know, I'm a generally curious person, and I always think that uh, there are new things to to look at. So I'm 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 a little bit restless. So uh, less exotic, but when I got out of college in Ohio, I thought anywhere but Ohio. I'm not staying in Ohio, so ended up back in Chicago. But all right, so you're in New York, you're working in finance, and then you end up going to Stanford for business school. How did you? How did you get into hedge funds? I mean, that just you know, when you and I first talked, I'm like, you know, I think you're the first person I've actually ever met who's worked at a hedge fund. I'm not surprised because hedge funds at the time when I started were very unknown, secretive types of companies. It was a very small industry. It was really a starting industry. Look, my interest in uh, the buy side, as we call it, i.e. buying securities, came late and it came while I was in business school. I had sort of a vague idea that it would be very cool to sit on the trading floor and, and be sort of the female Gordon Gecko of, of sorts. <laughs> uh, and investment banking was, especially at my level, I was a lowly analyst. It was far, far from that cool image. But at Stanford, I had two classes that really drew me in. One was taught by Bill Sharp, who was a, a Nobel Prize in uh, economy and the inventor, obviously, of the Sharp ratio. I loved him. And when I say I loved him, I really did. I had a crush on him. Enormous. <laughs> That's the, 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 the right. Now, were you married at the time or no? No, but he was. Okay. Very okay. much so. <laughs> but you know that didn't that didn't uh, stop my feelings. That the right. platonic, uh, obviously, but uh, right. but 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 uh, unbridled feelings of uh, adoration for Professor Sharp. In the process, I discovered a real interest in investing. So after graduating in '98, I looked for a job in finance and more specifically in hedge funds. And these were very difficult to find because um, obviously those companies were not recruiting on campus. I don't think they, they, they are now. Maybe the big ones are. But these were scrappy, small companies that were really under the radar. And then remember that back in 98, the cool thing to do was to, to, to go work in the internet. That was the new thing. So my all my classmates um you know were talking about eyeballs and www and the, the the net and everything else and i was the uncool 
a student who was uh, adamant that she wanted to work at a hedge fund. And I found this little company called Canyon Capital in Los Angeles. You know, there were maybe 10 people and 500 million in assets. I love the guys. I thought this is going to be a great adventure. At that point, were there, I mean, were there any women there? Did you know any women who were in hedge funds? No. And I didn't know anybody who was in hedge funds, period. That was the idea that I had for myself, but I had never even met a hedge fund manager. Did Mr. Sharp or Professor Sharp, did he encourage you to go do hedge funds? I mean, did anybody say, oh, you can't do that? Or they said, great idea or? No, I didn't even ask anybody. It it didn't occur to me. and, And, you know, this was some decades ago. I think the concept of mentoring and particularly for a French person where the education system is, is uh, or was at, at least very formal, the idea that a professor is more than somebody who uh, teaches you during classes, who could be a mentor, who could be an advisor, was very foreign to me. So I, mm-hmm. I uh, no, I didn't even think of asking. You end up having a wonderful career at Canyon Capital, building up their CLO practice, which is what you were explaining this to me. The CLO stands for Collateralized Loan Obligations, and it's a type of investment vehicle that buys different loans in companies like, you know, uh, Domino's, Pizza Hut, uh, Best Buy, and then it finances the loans by issuing bonds and equity to different investors. Now, you retire in 2018. Why did you decide to do it then? So it had been almost uh, 20 years of uh, working with Canyon. And the industry changed very drastically in those 20 years. I think these were really the golden years of the business. I think now the hedge fund industry is very mature. It's very competitive. If you think of an S-curve for any industry, I think it's probably on the flat part of the S. So everything is different. Competition, correlation, and particularly the size and the scale of hedge funds. So if you think of Canyon, this is now a company that manages $25 billion in assets and probably has 250 people. So the thrill, the entrepreneurial spirit is no longer there. I think there are a lot of other positive aspects that have replaced it. But, you know, for me, it was time for a change. I thought I had I had become a partner in 2012. So, you know, I had built wealth. I had built a title. And I think that that, that was just about as far as I could take that uh, that that lead. So it was time for a change and change every 20 years is probably a good thing anyways. Yeah. Yeah. Did you know what you're going to do next? I did not. And you said to me that retiring and losing your identity caused you some angst and that you had you didn't know how you're going to introduce yourself. So and that happened to me as well. For the first like year, I was like, I don't have a card anymore. It doesn't have my big lofty <laughs> title on it. How have you dealt with that? So the angst came mostly before I I stopped working. And it's, as you said, it's, first of all, it is the biggest chunk of your day, right? No matter how involved a mother or wife you are, there are only 24 hours in a day, hopefully eight or nine of which you're sleeping. So if you're spending 
12 hours at work, which I think is a reasonable, you know, I came in at 6.30, I left at 6.30. That's not a very long day, but that was what I did. And that is, that sort of becomes who you are and how you introduce yourself. And let's face it, I thought I was a pretty big deal when I said, (laughs) I thought, look at me, partner at Canyon Capital. And the circles I... I was in, they valued that title. They thought, they did think, I think, that it was a pretty big deal too when I introduced myself to them. Of course, once you stop working, you don't really, you have different sets of friends and social acquaintances and you make new friends and you do other things. And so really the fact that you are a hedge fund or you were a hedge fund manager has no importance at all. Uh, so, so, you know, I think self-deprecation is, is important, uh, you know, to realize that you're not that big a deal. It doesn't matter that much. And most people would rather talk about themselves than about you anyways. So it doesn't matter. And most people don't really understand what a hedge fund does. And there's that. <laughs> like when I was working and my kids were in grade school, like, uh, and I lived in my town, right? We'd have parties, like, you know, at couples and everything. And I'd start like, and, you know, usually the women would be sort of one group, the men and the other. And I'd start to try and explain to one or the other group, like what I did. And then everybody's eyes would roll like, what? Like, yeah, let's not really talk about that. Tonight, exactly. Right? This was, just, you know, this, this was small talk question. You don't really have to, to ask that. I had the same feeling when somebody would ask me about a trade. That was so exciting to me. And it it's it was quite obvious after a minute that really nobody cares. It, and the, <laughs> the the point was well made by my grandfather, uh, bless the the man. But he asked me once what uh, what I did for for a job, and I said I worked for a hedge fund. I worked in in finance, and he said, "Aha, do you sit or do you stand?" And in his mind, I worked at a bank. And in banks, most tellers are standing at a window making change or giving you. So he thought, actually, I was a bank. Uh, I was a, a clerk at a bank. Uh, and I said, I, I know a, a grandfather, I sit. That was really something very positive about his granddaughter that I, that, that I said. <laughs> so he was very pleased with my uh, trajectory career-wise. You have a really interesting chapter in your story that I'm going to call sort of Act 2.5, where you become a member of the Pacific Gas and Electric Board. That's right. That was an interesting chapter because your cohort was appointed as sort of the fixers of the PG&E board. It was sort of post some pretty bad fires, if I remember correctly. That's right. So talk talk about what you did. How did they find you? What was Because I think this might be of interest to other people who might be listening, that they might be called in to be a fixer and what that's like. That's right. These were the circumstances. The PG&E equipment was involved in severe fires in 2017, 2018, and the liabilities that went with that caused the company for, for bankruptcy early 2019, I think. 
And the sitting board was asked to leave and was replaced by a new set of some 15 people, among whom I was, I was one. And the job was to restructure the company so that it can emerge as soon as possible for, from bankruptcy and participate as the biggest financier of the new California State Wildfire Fund put in place by Governor Newsom. So I had worked with a lawyer, a bankruptcy lawyer who was representing the majority shareholders, and he suggested my name. Some shareholders knew me from having worked together on bankruptcy cases, stressed and distressed cases as a hedge fund portfolio manager. So uh, I sort of knew the cast of character. And I went in with a bunch of other people and the job was, you know, try to set the company straight so that uh, it doesn't linger in bankruptcy and it's a functioning company. Did you get the job done? The job got done. We em- The company emerged on time with a new plan, a new capital structure, and having uh, satisfied all its liabilities, including the claimants' litigation claims. And then you, you were replaced, right? That Correct. That was then replaced. Correct. Right. So right. It was a... Such an interesting set of circumstances, because if you think about it, success for us meant that we got sacked and replaced by us. <laughs> so I never worked so hard with the stated objective that if we if we met the goal, it was very likely that we would be uh, we would be asked to 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 move along and be replaced by a new set of directors. And I think you mentioned that it paid very well, right? Oh, yes. Uh, You know, for the, you know, the number of hours, I mean, it was clearly below minimum wages for sure for for a good year and a half. Wow. Now, would you ever do something like that again? Oh, yeah. In a second. Okay. If somebody so and I, I know other people have been approached to do something like that, which I think is in some ways like maybe not public service, but maybe a little bit there. But how might you advise to look at a situation like that? I think it's uh, it's fascinating. Yeah. It's it's an immense learning experience. You get to work with really complex problems. Uh, it's a puzzle where you have to fit the capital structure, the business, the liabilities, the bankruptcy constraints. It's sort of a strategy game where you have to contend with the shareholders, uh, the creditors, the governor's office, the California regulators, management of the company, the unions. So intellectually, it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. This one had the added difficulty that it is a heavily politicized and uh, media scrutinized process. The company is not well liked. Uh, that's at least you can say in the state. And the board that was uh, the slate of directors I was part of was was quickly and heavily vilified by Governor Newsom as being the you know SOBs of hedge funds and ripping mm-hmm. off the the plaintiffs and wanting to make money for the shareholders, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, it it was uh, at times hard to work that hard for that little money with, uh, and being called names uh, by, in the process. Right. right? So it was uh, at times uh, tempting to just say the hell with it. I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. And actually a a couple of board members quit because they just, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Wow. 
okay, so now you have a book coming out on September 7th. I do. Congratulations. And I love the name, Damsel in Distressed. Tell us about the book. The book came out of my observation uh, late in the game after 20 years in hedge funds that not only were there no women in hedge funds, but because of that, there was for a young woman or young professional, there, there, there was no one to look at as a successful model or path to sort of engage in that profession. And so yeah, I mean, it's well known that what you can't see, you can't be, as the feminist said. So I thought, you know, I had a wonderful career. I'm grateful to Canyon and the founding partners. It was great fun. Let me write the story so that if at least one or two women are inspired to try their luck at it, that'll be progress. I mean, in my 20 years, I've met one female partner only. I'm not saying there are one There are others, uh, but in Distressed, I met one, and she's a friend of mine. In your 20 years, did you have women come to your firm who were coming up, or did they quit, or what happened? I think there are more women at the junior level uh, who then move on. There are few to begin with, so the ratio, the mix of women to men is, is much, much worse on the buy side, particularly in hedge funds versus lawyers or bankers, or consultants. And then as you go up in seniority, as in many, if not most jobs, women disappear. Well, okay, so let's just say factoring out for attrition related to mom, being a mom, maybe you want to stay home or that type of take care of your kids. I mean, why do you think, I mean, so many industries have in some ways not fully crossed over the line where you now start to see more and more senior women. I mean, what's going on there? What's holding women back? I think it's, uh, as usual, different different things. One is I think women don't think of finance and investment as a viable path because there are no voices saying you can do that as there are in media, in tech, in, you know, in VC, you have a few women who are very vocal and very media savvy saying, you know, you can lean in, you can, you know, opera in media. In in most even male-dominated industries, you can think of one woman who's sort of leading the charge and inspiring. I'd be hard-pressed to think of one in finance. Maybe Kathy Wood is, is one, but she came up just Two or three years ago, she didn't exist. You know, when I when I retired, uh, so that's that's a factor that you know you don't have anyone leading the way and and showing that it's possible. And and in many ways, I hope my book will will do that in its modest way. And the other is that hedge funds have been up until you know, let's call it at least a few years ago, immensely successful at making money for investors, but mostly at making money for themselves. And so if you have a winning structure, the impetus to change it and say, you know, we need fresh ideas, we need new people, we need diversity, that impetus is just not there. Why would you do anything? So men are doing the hiring and they're hiring the people they know and they feel comfortable with who happen to be men. That makes perfect sense. What's changing, I think, is in both ways. One is investors 
large institutions are starting to ask for diversity forcefully and really rank and grade their investor and their their hedge fund managers by the diversity of their investment team. And two, hedge funds have been underperforming the market, or at least not outperforming the market for several years now. And so I think there's at least the idea that maybe we need a new engine, a new motor, a new structure, something that rejuvenate the the business. And I think having, you know, something else than 10 Harvard white male graduates in your investment team might just be the ticket to, to, to do that. So what was it like to write and publish a book? I know I've talked to, I have another friend who wrote one, but I know people that I've talked to on this show have been thinking about doing it. What was your experience? Writing it was very pleasurable, very fun. I worked with a wonderful writing coach who helped me structure the the story. So so that was great fun. How long did it take you to write it? A year. The part that's a lot less fun is that then you have to find an agent and the agent has to pitch your book to uh to a publishing house. Finding an agent is is very difficult and you are going to face at least I did uh, a large number of rejections. So that's that nobody has fun being rejected and being said no to. And then uh, and then the agent, once you get one, if you get one, has to find a publishing house who accepts to take on the book. And then once the book is bought by a publishing house, most of of those publishers, at least for you know, people like me who are first-time writers don't have no, I'm not a famous person. I didn't write a cookbook and I didn't write a self <laughs> book either. Now, if you don't have any of those three, it's a, it's hard. And that means you'll have very little budget for PR. And it means you need to do lots of things your, yourself, uh, promotion-wise. Yeah. Okay. So just so people are listening, if you're famous, Jack, if you're a cookbook author, check. And if you're writing a self-help book. Beautiful. All good. Beautiful. Beautiful. That's, all right. that's success right there. Okay. So, but in spite of all that, you've got, it's published. I Have you seen the, the hardcover version of it and everything so in far? In PDF, I, I have. In yes. PDF? Yeah. Good. So on September 7th, and we will promote that as we launch this. So five company boards, because you're on multiple boards now. You've got your book coming out. You're playing polo. Is all of this your third act or how else? Um, and, and then how do you introduce yourself these days? That is my third act. And I introduce myself when people ask me what I do. I say, I don't do anything. Oh, what you do? <laughs> and then if they want to know, you know, more than I'll, depending on, on the setup of the meeting, I'll explain that I either I'm a polo player or board member or, or book writer. Uh, but I, I very much enjoy saying I, I don't do anything. I don't do much. I like to say that I spent half my life making money and I'll spend the next half spending it, which is kind of true. It's kind of true. It's kind yeah, of true. I love that. What a great life. What a great <laughs> life to be able to do that. That's what I always say. If you have time, talent and treasure, what are you going to do with it? So I, yeah, I thought about calling my podcast. I'm not done yet because I feel like I'm not. So what aren't you done with yet? You know, I'm, I'm interested in, in lots and lots of things. If, uh, if I had time, I would start new sports. I would travel even more. 
I read a lot, which is a, 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 an enormous luxury. I found that while I was working, it was hard to to read and finish a book. And uh, now if I want to read until three in the morning, I just do, thinking I'll just wake up late tomorrow and What's right. the big that was deal? Me last night. I'm reading I'm reading one of those recommended beach reads, which I never have done like for years and years. And I was literally laying in bed at midnight, one o'clock, and it's falling. I'm falling asleep and I'm like, I've got to figure out they're about to get together. I've got to <laughs> read it, right? <laughs> well, anyway. So I can't let you go without saying favorite books, just recommendations for our listeners. My favorite book is Kim by Rudyard Kipling. Uh, oh, okay. And uh, it is a, it's an, epic adventure uh, of a young boy in India uh, discovering the world with with a guru under India being under the the rule of of England and having something called the great game where England is spying on on uh, India and it, it's uh, it's magnificent it's beautifully written I, I reading is a great joy well, I will pick that up as I finish up my steamy beach read. But thank you so <laughs> <Different> much. <laughs> yeah, different. Thanks so much for a chance to talk with you and good luck with the book. We'll publish everything in the show notes. Dominique, thanks so much for your time. And we look forward to the, the book release. Thank you so much, Liz. Thanks for joining me today to listen to the Third Act podcast. You can find show notes, guest bios, and more at thirdactpodcast.com. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe and write a review on your favorite podcast platform. I'm your host, Liz Tinkham. I'll be back next week with another guest who's found new meaning and fulfillment in the third act of their life.